please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17. If you remember from last week, we've been going over the times of the life of Elijah, which was also the time of King Ahab, which was not a good time at all in Israel. After King Ahab married the Phoenician Baal-worshipping princess Jezebel, Baal worship began to spread all over Israel, and the true worship of God was almost entirely wiped out. But as we saw in our passage last time, God is still in control, even in a world where evil and corruption is all around us and reigns. The reason for this fact is is that God is God and there is no other God. He controls everything and he is faithful and he always preserves his people. That gives us optimism in every situation in life because our God is in control and he's good. So here, even in the darkest days of Israel, God has raised up a prophet out of nowhere, apparently, Elijah. And his name meant, my God is Yahweh. And he carried a message from God to Ahab. As Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain all these years except by my word. And just as he promised, it stopped raining. The days turned into weeks, the weeks into months, the months into years. Not a drop of rain fell from the sky. This is partly to show, you remember, that Baal was not God at all because Baal was supposedly the God of rain. And by causing this drought, God was showing everyone that he is the true God in Israel and that Baal is not real. It was also judgment on Israel, judgment from the Lord as they had turned away from his word, and so God was taking his word away, and Elijah was removed to, the, to hide himself by the brook uh, Cherith, east of the Jordan River. And there by that brook, God in his providence, daily providence, had ravens bring bread and meat every morning and every evening just um, as God had provided for Israel in the wilderness, manna every day is a recurring miracle. Now, God didn't tell Elijah everything that was going to happen. He didn't tell him what's going to happen next. He just had to patiently wait as God shows his faithfulness day after day. And there he would see God's faithfulness providing for him, but he would also see the creek shrinking getting smaller and smaller. But the God of the the ravens is also the God of the stream. And God is sovereign in our comforts just as he is in our difficulties. He's faithful in the valley of the shadow just as he is in the green pastures. He is faithful. He's powerful. Your tomorrow is just just as much in his hands as today. And as we'll see in our passage today, there are no borders to your king's reign, no limits to his rule. 
Let's pray. Begin, Lord, I ask that you would open up our eyes, help us to see what you would have to teach us in your word, increase our faith, increase our trust in you, and help us to love you and follow you despite all the difficulties that may come. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read from 1 Kings chapter 17, starting at verse 7. I'll read through 24. This is God's word. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you've said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged, and he laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Amen. The last time we were here, we had left Elijah by the banks of the brook Cherith. It's been a week for us, probably months, maybe a year for Elijah. 
being fed by these ravens and watching the brook dry up. Elijah didn't know what God had planned next. He must have had a lot of time to sit and think about life as he sat there eating, eating the food and wondering what is going to happen. Is Ahab going to repent? Is the stream going to dry up? Where am I going next? What's going to happen? God sent me to another brook somewhere? God is teaching us by his faithfulness and teaching Elijah that he's taking care of today and the future. You don't need to know. He'll tell you when it's time for you. That can be frustrating because we'd like to be God ourselves in many ways. We would like to know and be in control, be able to make plans. Uh, But we'll see a recurring theme in these passages that God hides the future from us so we don't have to think about it. He just provides day after day, recurring miracle of faithfulness here with Elijah, later with the widow, of of seeing his faithfulness, learning to trust him day by day, and not having to worry about what happens tomorrow. This is a way of making us like little children again in some ways. We're so focused on on having our, our, our life mapped out, knowing the future. I just want you to notice God doesn't tell it to Elijah until the time comes, what happens next. Now, God knows exactly how much water is left in that, in that brook. He knows exactly when it's time for Elijah to move. He does have a plan, it turns out. Finally, the day comes. Elijah goes to the brook. The water stops dripping. It's all gone. And now he's desperate. And in verse 9, God tells Elijah to get up and go to Zarephath. This is the grand plan that Elijah's been waiting for. Go to Zarephath inside and and stay there. God God has provided a widow for Elijah, uh, a widow to provide for Elijah. Now, Elijah might hear this and go, oh, great news. Uh, I could use a change of scenery here. Uh, but he might have had second thoughts when he heard God's plan. The more you think about it, the more terrible this plan sounds. There's nothing about it that sounds good, to be honest. First of all, where in the world is Zarephath? You might find it, in, not in all your maps probably, but if you were to look in your map in the back of the Bible, you might find it on the coast north of Israel, in between Tyre and Sidon. So it's in the region of Sidon. Between, uh, and more importantly, do you know who was from Sidon? Jezebel. Somebody answered it out there. Good. It's Jezebel, the wicked queen Jezebel. Now, we'll find out later on that Jezebel has been systematically hunting down and killing the prophets of the Lord in Israel. And but Elijah is, is public enemy number one. There is an international manhunt going on for Elijah. I'm not exaggerating. Ahab's been looking from country to country, trying to find Elijah because he thinks Elijah is the troubler of Israel. Elijah is the one who caused the drought. And God is calling Elijah to go into enemy territory to, to Jezebel's 
hometown practically and live there. How is he going to get there? How is he going to make his way there without being seen? How does he expect God to provide for him there? It's not to compare why well, I am doing it, but I'm comparing Elijah to Osama bin Laden. It would be like if we, when we finally found Osama bin Laden, he was living in D.C. How in the world did he get there? So Elijah is being sent into the heart of enemy territory, where the worshipers of Baal are, into this cesspool, the very heart of Baal worship. Why would God call him there, of all places? Why not just another stream? Why can't the birds just bring him water as well? I think for at least for a couple reasons. First, God is on a mission to show that he has all the power, that Baal has none. He is not running away. He doesn't need to run. If he wants, he can send his prophet right into the heart of enemy territory, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. And he can have him live there a while. In fact, God has commanded someone in that area to provide for Elijah. So in verse 1, God commands the, sun, the, the rain to stop raining. In verse 4, he commands the ravens to feed Elijah. In verse 9, he commands a widow in Sidon to feed Elijah. Now, what kind of God is this? He controls the weather. He controls the animals. He controls foreigners. So you see, he, he may be called the God of Israel, but that is not a limit to his power. That is a reference to his peculiar possession and his promises, his special people. It is not a limit to where he is geographically. But this is the way most people thought about gods in those days. This is the god of the mountains. This is the god of the valleys. This is the god of this area and that area. You need to know which god you're dealing with when you go to a new area. God is showing he is God everywhere. There is no other. To him belongs all the glory. He is no way limited to Israel. And God is still doing that today. He has all authority in heaven and earth. He has sent his, his disciples out, his apostles out to make disciples of all nations, that everyone would be brought under his rule. He is the God, not just of Israel. He is the God of South Carolina. He is the God of D.C., the God of Beijing, of Moscow, the God of Mecca. There is no one outside of his borders, no one outside of his rule, no place outside of his control. Our God is sovereign. Now, secondly, the fact that God is sending Elijah there to foreigners shows that he is disciplining Israel. Our Lord Jesus pointed this out in his first recorded sermon in Luke 4. They had asked him to do some miracles that he had done in other places. And he said, I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's day, and he was sent to none of them, but to Zarephath in Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in the days of Elisha. And he was sent to none of them, but to Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard this, 
they wanted to stone Jesus. They knew that he was saying that the days that he was living in, Israel was rejecting his word as they had rejected Elijah, as they had rejected Elisha, but also their own nationalism perhaps caused them to also not like this news that God was showing favor to foreigners, to enemies, to Samaritans, to people they don't like, and bypassing Israel at the same time. God's word, you see, was being taken away from Israel and graciously given to foreigners. God would speak about this in Isaiah. All day long, I've held out my hands to a a people. They were unwilling to receive him. That's one of the reasons why at this point here in Mount Pleasant, there's people who know the Lord. God has sent his gospel out. And sadly, many people in Israel do not know him. We pray that this will change, uh, that that the gospel will go back to Israel and his people would come uh, also into his church. It's a warning to us, though, as well. As Paul said, if God, if God can remove the branches, the natural branches, could he not also remove the ones that were grafted in? If we reject his word, maybe the church will, will shrink here. It has in Europe. Those churches are just a shell of what they used to be. So we need to come back to God's word, accept it with faith, uh, live in, in, in fear, holy fear of God, not, not take his word for granted because he may reject, he might remove it from us if we keep rejecting him. The second reason why God's command to Elijah sounds bad, not just that it's in Zarephath, but because of who is going to care for him there. Now, it's bad enough that Elijah is going into enemy territory, but he's going to be cared for by who? By a starving widow. Now, Elijah might think, I'm sorry, could you say that again? It sounded like you were sending me to Zarephath and a widow was going to take care of me and feed me. A widow, of all people in the Bible, widows are some of the most poor. How is someone who's starving going to provide for me? It makes no sense. Makes no sense to us, really. Probably made no sense to Elijah. I'm pretty certain it made no sense to the widow, especially Widows are are poor. They have basically nothing. What an unlikely place for God to send Elijah and to such an unlikely person. Good news, Elijah. A starving widow in Zarephath is going to take care of you. So what is more unlikely than that? Why would God send him there to this person? But you know what I'm going to say, don't you? It's God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. No one will be able to say that this widow saved Elijah by her power. 
for it is clearly God who saves them both. Elijah packs his bags, whatever he had, puts on his, his camel hair outfit, and he hikes all the way up to Zarephath. He gets there, and right as he gets there, as he enters the gate, there's a widow there outside the gate gathering sticks to prepare her last supper. How's that for timing? The stream stops dripping just the right time for Elijah to hike all the way up to Zarephath to meet this woman as she's preparing her last meal. That is precision that puts the finest Swiss watch to shame. God is sovereign. It's not random. He didn't just come up with this plan right at this moment. He is, he is perfectly in control of all the random things that seem to happen to us. God was not sleeping when we were taken by surprise. Now, in his hands, even the most chaotic, the most random events are actually all occurring under his sovereign rule. I'm not going, going to go into too much detail about this miracle here. I'll just go over it quickly. Elijah, amazingly, asked to be fed first. This was common in those days, in some ways, that when a visitor would come, you provide for that person first. And it was typical tradition that uh, people would, would give you water when you asked for it, and they would, they would uh, bring the water to you. But Elijah asked to be fed first when he knows that this woman only has enough for one, really. But a promise goes with this hard request. He says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. <clears throat> this is tough. He is not in Israel. He is not speaking to someone who follows the Lord God of Israel. This woman recognizes that Elijah is from Israel. He says, as Yahweh your God lives. So she believes, but she, doesn't, she hasn't come to know Yahweh as her God. So she, she believes uh, that God exists. She's not, maybe not sure that he can give rain. Maybe not sure that he can make this jar of oil never run out. But she, she obeys amazingly. She listens to God's word, not like they didn't listen in Israel. She listens, she obeys, and she takes her oil, pours out the last drops, takes the last bit of flour, makes a cake for Elijah. And somehow there's more in there, just enough for herself as well. One, one pastor summarized this command like this, give me all that you have, and I'll give you all you need. Now, she didn't have much, just like the boy with five loaves and two fishes didn't have much either. But God's power is not limited by the quantity of our resources or our abilities. On the contrary, it's when we're just about empty that God's power is displayed most clearly. So this poor foreign widow trusts the God of Israel 
and she was saved from starvation. So in God's economy, as it often is, the food was multiplied not in the hoarding, but in the spending. As the proverb says, there is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. There's also the proverb that says, he who gives to the poor lends to the Lord. So it's an important principle. I hope you remember that this most secure bank for your money is the bellies of the poor. Did you notice again how God provides in such a way that this woman might be built up in faith? He doesn't say, go back into your house, you will find 50 bags of flour, 100 jars of oil, you're good to go for the rest of the famine. No, he, he provides just enough for one more meal every meal. Like Israel in the wilderness, like Elijah by the brook, she has to learn to walk by faith and not by sight. She has to learn to trust the provider, not the provision. Moses said it like this in Deuteronomy 8, he humbled you and let you go hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And he, she found God faithful. You see, there's nothing lost when you are kind to God's people. She received a prophet and received a prophet's reward. Now, what a wonderful story this is. Their lives were saved. And see, that would already be an amazing story of God's power if our passage ends right there. But it doesn't. There is this strange, almost cruel twist to this story. Confusing. Day after day, this poor widow must have rejoiced to see this continuing miracle. Always enough flour, always enough oil, and with it, the hope of survival. Her son has been saved. And then he dies. What good is an endless supply of flour and oil when your only son is dead in your arms? On the one hand, she has no room to complain. Her son would have already died if God had not provided. But why restore hope just that it might be ripped away again? But does God not have the right to give and to take? He does. But it's the way that it happens that's so confusing and so startling. Her son are about to die of starvation, and then they're saved in the most miraculous of ways. Hope is restored just as quickly as ripped away. Why would God do such a thing? Could a good God do this? And then Elijah says to her, give me your son. Does she think that God can restore life? Does Elijah even think that? For this is the first time in the Bible that anyone has ever been raised from the dead. It's never happened before. 
There is no promise given to Elijah here that this boy is going to be restored to life. But Elijah takes this boy and he lays him out before the Lord and he prays. He carries him up to the room. He pleads to the Lord over the life of this boy. That's all he could do. Even though he's a prophet, he doesn't have special powers. He doesn't know what God's going to do. So all he, all he could do was pray. Oh, Lord, my God, have you also bought, brought calamity to this widow with whom I, I'm staying by causing her son to die? You see how helpless Elijah is, how desperate he is. But in his desperation, he cries to the Lord. That's the right thing to do. That's the right place to go. Lord, oh, Lord, my God, I pray you let the child's life return to him. Brothers and sisters, this, it's one thing to see that God is still in control when you are in Israel or when you are in Sidon. The border between those two nations is not something that restrains God. But what about this border? Can, God can heal people who are sick, he can feed people who are starving. But this, is this too much? Can he bring the dead back to life? But God's power has no borders. It has no borders. His hand is not so short that it cannot save. Yes, the Bible says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But remember, it also says, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. Life and death and resurrection are in God's hands. He created life from nothing. He can restore it when it's gone. And the answer comes to us so simply, verse 22. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. We would see this again, really, with the Lord Jesus, the widow of Nain, when she lost her only son. And with compassion, he goes and restores that boy to life. The woman sees it and believes, just like this woman here, sees it and believes. And what joy and, and thankfulness Elijah must have had as he came down those stairs holding this boy who has been restored to life never happened before. And he says, look, your son lives. The author of Hebrews summarized this whole story in just one short phrase in Hebrews 11, that great chapter of faith. By faith, women received back their dead by resurrection. And now, in this most unlikely of ways, this poor widow has not only been saved from starvation, but she becomes a believer as well. See, she had believed the Lord to some extent before, but now she believes more. She says, now I know that you are a man of God 
and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. In this amazing way, she joins the ranks of Rahab and Ruth and so many other Gentiles who came in in the most unlikely of ways and became part of God's people. She was saved. Now, if you pause and consider just what this, this chapter, 1 Kings 17, teaches us about God and what this woman could have believed, it's rather remarkable. We have learned in this chapter that God is a God of justice, a God who punishes sin. He is also a God who is faithful and who keeps his word. He is a God who is sovereign over the weather and over animals. He knows the future. He has no real rivals. We've seen that he is a good and gracious God. He's not just judging Israel when he sends, this, sends Elijah away. It's also because he's compassionate, because he loves the widow and the fatherless. He shows mercy to the needy. He brings foreigners into his family. All that in 1 Kings 17. It sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? All that and more this widow could have seen just in the events of this chapter. But on this day, the Lord's day, we have even more reason to believe than the widow. For the Lord Jesus has shown us God's love and power in ways far greater than Elijah ever witnessed. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It may seem cruel that this widow's son died, but God knows what it's like to lose his only son. It's because of Christ's death that this boy could be saved, and the widow, and Elijah, and whoever calls upon the name of the Lord. And Jesus showed us God's love and power in ways that would have amazed Elijah. With a few loaves and a couple of fish, Jesus fed the 5,000. He multiplied food. He showed himself to be the bread of life. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He showed himself to be the resurrection and the life. In Luke 7, as I mentioned, he brought a woman's only, a widow's only son back to life. But he did more than that, too. It's amazing to heal the sick more amazing to raise the dead. But Jesus' power over life and death was seen most of all when he himself bore our sins. He carried our sorrows and died a gruesome death on the cross. For three days, he was under the power of death. He was in the grave. But today is the Lord's day. Today, we celebrate the fact that death was unable to hold him in its power. That he was raised up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it is impossible for him to be held in its power. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is risen. He has the keys to death and Hades in his hand. What he shuts, no one opens. What he opens, no one can close. He is risen, he is dead, he was dead, and behold, he is alive forevermore. Your Redeemer lives. 
For you who believe in him, remember, not even death can separate you from his love. What a Savior we have. Let us, let us pray to him. Lord, we ask that you would give us faith when we don't know the future, when the stream is running out, when the jar runs low, when the bag of flour is empty, when even our, our children are dead. Help us to remember that you are still in control and that a day is coming that you will make all things new. Oh, let it be soon, Lord. Help us to trust you and to remain steadfast in that time. Until then, and hold us fast until we enter to your heavenly kingdom. Help us also, Lord, to remember the poor and to not put our hope in the things that you've given us, but to put our hope in you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.